Hello there and welcome to the 9 o'clock show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the past week. On this week's show, from social worker to screenwriter, a Limerick woman finds her dream job. And broadcaster and former chef Mark Wogan talks about his foodie podcast with a twist. And on Friday's show, how one woman was surprised to find not a skeleton in the closet of her family history, but a shipwreck. All in this week's podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Now, this time of year, we tend to get very existential, don't we? And if you've been dreaming of changing your life or your job or making a big life gear shift, well, listen to this. Sinead Colopy swapped social work for screenwriting. And she joins me now from the Limerick studio to tell us more. Good morning, Sinead. Good morning, Shay. How are you? I'm very good. Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you. Did you have a lovely Christmas? It was lovely. Yeah, really nice. Loads of kids. I have three three small kids. So, uh-huh. you know, they, they make it, don't they? They do. How old are they? They are 11, 9 and 6. And are you allowed to give them a shout out on the radio? or? Yeah, they'll be at home listening. So Callum, Evan and Saoirse, back in Ennis. Hello. Yeah, and they're, they're, do you know what they're doing at the moment? They're tidying the house. And they're, doing, they're doing cleaning. I wish, eh? I wish. And, and, and Santa came? Santa came. It was very good this year. Uh, but they were very good, so they deserved everything they got. So, yeah. Oh, wow. You're like a PR person for your own children. I like it. You can tell me the truth when we go off here. <laughs> yeah, they kill me otherwise. <laughs> well, good morning, guys. And I know you'll have the house nice and clean for Mammy when, you, when she gets home. Uh, give us a quick snapshot of, of your old life before we talk about your new life. Yeah, gosh, I suppose, um, you know, my qualifications, I suppose is where it already started. I uh, went to the University of Limerick, studied history, politics and sociology, was really interested in the, the sociology side of things. Um, and that sort of led me down a path to sort of uh, do a master's in Galway in community work. So I was really interested in working with communities and community development and especially working with kids and young people. Um, So I finished up in Galway in 2003 and I went straight into what was then the Southern Health Board down in Cork um, as a community health worker. Um, And I started there in the north side of Cork City, um, a wonderful community called Knocknahini. And I spent a number of years there doing various different kind of youth community health projects, uh, working on the ground with communities, kind of building various different uh, projects there with kids around mental health or maybe education or working with the elderly. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, And then moved over to the Child and Family Agency, which was then the Midwestern Health Board, actually, um, in Limerick. And I, I moved up there to... County Clare um, and started working there alongside my social work colleagues um, kind of building kind of community projects again focusing primarily on, on children and young people and family support and, and maybe kids and care or, or, or maybe youth mental health again or you know helping kids stay in school so it was always kind of the youth focus but uh, I suppose I've been a public servant for 20 years from 2003 right up to 2023 and uh, always worked for the state agency and now Midwestern Health Board then turned into Tusla and, and I stayed on board there with my social work colleagues in Tusla um, and and that's kind of really what my bread and butter was really for, for 20 years. You picked a, a difficult I mean I know there's, there's, there's great moments in it when you, a project is a success or you see a young person coming through and then you meet them in a few years and they've, their life is, has been better because they've been involved in one of the projects but you've seen some, you see some difficult things as well. Oh just you know I, I think you know over the years it, I think it's, it's just become really, really challenging for families out there. I think it's become really challenging for young people. I mean, when I was growing up, there was no mobile phones, there was no social media. You didn't have the, the type of pressures that young people and, and kids have now. And, you know, you know, I work in County Clare, which is a rural county, 
And you sometimes look at different services that families and kids might have if you're in Dublin compared to, say, if you're living out in West Clare. And it's it's really hard when the needs on the ground are so huge and, and sometimes the resources, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, they need to go where the populations are as well. But, you know, you often be advocating and fighting for services out in rural areas because they have needs and needs need to be met. And then we had big crisis. You know, we, we had the Ukrainian refugees coming to Ireland. Uh, that was a huge turning point for us inside in Tusla, huge pressure on the service. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of firefighting an awful lot, but um, but it was very worthwhile. It's it's a very rewarding career and and I love every minute of it. You, you can find yourself on a treadmill though, of work and then coming home and then when you have a young family and trying to get the that you need a hobby of some sort and what, what was your choice of hobby? Yeah it, it really was that's the word for it Shay. It, w- it was a hobby I suppose I was turning 40 and I guess you know my career is is very much about thinking about other people thinking about other children and, and thinking about communities and kind of giving all the time and then my kids are very young I have three very small kids so you're giving a lot to them and you sort of kind of feel like God, you know what's what's there for me for myself and what did I really enjoy doing that was just mine and, um, and I remember just thinking back to when I was a teenager and I, I loved writing. I was really, really good at English in school. It was, it was useless at maths, useless at science. <laughs> it's just, you know, one of those typical people that, you know, you're good at one thing, but not so good at the other. But English was my thing. And I, I remember pulling out a book of old essays that I wrote as a teenager and I'm seeing my teacher's comments on the essays saying, oh, you're really good and you've got great imagination. So then I started thinking, God, you know, turning 40, I, you know, might set myself a little challenge. I wonder, can I write stories again? And it was just literally for myself. The, the idea was never to show to anybody else. It was just something for myself to do in my spare time. Um, and then I sort of started watching movies and saying, God, I wonder how you write screenplays. I mean, you know, I wonder, is it very different to short stories? And of course, it's completely different. Um, so, yeah, I sort of picked it up and, and Googled and, and bought a couple of books and started reading That's screenplays. It, it was, yeah, it was literally just, just an interest. It was just a curiosity. It, it really started out as a curiosity as to can I do this? What I used to do 25 years ago, can, do I still have that spark? Do I still have that imagination? Um, something to do for myself in the evenings when the kids were in bed that was literally just for me I, I, I noticed you, you said Vera Wang made her first wedding dress at 40 yeah so 40 is not a bad place to start well I think you know when you're in your 40s like you have a life experience behind you you know I mean I had been working all those years working with, with really interesting people and, and, and fascinating communities and you've seen the world a bit and I suppose it's a time that you kind of reflect back you, you know I'm a mum now so your perspective is slightly different so we have different stories to tell in our 40s compared to when you're a teenager or in your 20s you know you have that life experience behind you good and bad and I think that's what kind of makes writers in their 40s really creative because we, we bring that wealth of, of worldliness with us, you know. So you, you, you bought the books, you, you downloaded the software. Downloaded, there's free software. Um, you know, it's not very good, but it's fine for, for the basics. It gets you started and uh, just started fiddling around. And, and then the BBC Writers Room, their website is really, really good. They've got a script library. So, you know, you can be watching Peaky Blinders, you can be watching whatever shows you want that BBC have made and you can go into their script library and you can find the screenplays to the whole series. Ooh. So yeah, so, so you can, it's an, an amazing free resource. It's really good. And so I started reading the screenplays and it's amazing to see, you know, I was like, God, it's not very different to, you know, the plays we'd have read in school. So like, you know, the, the format and the structure to, I studied King Lear for my leaving cert. So I was like, God, it's quite similar. You know, the structure looks similar. Um, so I was like, God, oh, maybe it's not that intimidating. So I started fiddling around and coming up with little stories 
myself, but still had no intention of ever showing anybody because I was like, God, it's, you know, you'd be a bit embarrassed and you'd be like, you know, it's like people would think you've notions. The Irish are great for saying, oh, you've got notions of yourself. Who do you think you're going to be? Do you think you're going to Hollywood? And I was like, oh, I'd be really embarrassed to show this. Um, and then I, it was just like one, one short film, uh, a little short screenplay. I connected in with two producers in Limerick and I showed them and we got a small little fund and, and the short film Paddy got made. And uh, and that was kind of really the start of it, really. It was like somebody else saw something else I wrote and they said, God, you know, it's it's not perfect. It's a bit of a rough diamond. You, you, you haven't a clue about structure, but, but you certainly have a story in there somewhere. Um, and that kind of spark of encouragement, I suppose, just kind of was like a ripple effect, really. So, you, so collaboration was the key, really. You, you, you found the confidence to bring out the old essays and think, actually, I can do this. But the collaboration is what brought you out of the sitting room or out of the out of the, the dining room and the, the laptop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's so many writers that you're you're just literally, you know, at your kitchen table or wherever you have the space and, and you're just writing for yourself. And, and if you do that, it'll only be a memoir. It'll be a diary. It'll never go anywhere else. Um, but I had no connections in the screen industry, like absolutely nobody. It's, you know, a lot of people get into the screen industry because they have been in theatre or they've been actors or they've been in production. So they, they kind of started out there and then they moved into writing at a certain point. And how did you find the two people in Limerick that you collaborated with? Um, it was actually a Limerick woman called Susan Liddy, who um, she works in the University of Limerick and she's uh, very involved in, in women in film. And um, I had come across some of her articles and I emailed her and I said, hi, Susan. I says, I'm a woman living in Clare. I'm really interested in, you know, making some connections in the industry. How do I, you know, would you know anybody in the Midwest area? And it was actually Susan who put me in touch. Um, so it's just, you know, it's finding those people that are advocates for for new entries and, and that will take a chance on, on sending you on a certain path. And they're, they're instrumental, you know, people like Susan, they're instrumental. And people want new stories and they want new writers and they want, like people are out there waiting for stuff to come. Uh, so they're happy to hear hear from you. Yeah, I think, in, I mean, especially the fact that I'm in Ireland, I've often said this, I think if I started my career in the UK, it would be, a, you know, at my age with no connections, it would be a different story. I think um, it's, I'm really, really lucky to be in this country trying to break in in my 40s into the industry. Um, it's a small country, people know each other. Um, producers are generally really open, um, whereas over the UK or in America, they won't accept any scripts from screenwriters. You, know, you often see on their websites no unsolicited scripts, which means that you have to have an agent. They'll only deal with your agent. And, and so many writers spend years before they're able to get an agent. So it's very closed over there. Whereas in Ireland, you know, Screen Ireland are amazing. They, they offer a huge amount of different events, meet and greets for writers and producers, and they kind of match make you up on various different schemes. So the Irish industry, it's very different. It's very open. And um, yeah, it's been a godsend for me, really. Organisations like Screen Ireland. And you, 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 well, I was going to say the BBC came calling, but you came calling to the BBC. Yeah, 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 I did, yeah. That was during COVID, I suppose. That was really challenging, I suppose. You know, you were, were I was working for Tuesday still full time. It was really, really stressful, like everybody in the country. I had three kids at home, homeschooling, working off the kitchen table. It was, pressure was on. And uh, BBC Writers Room put out a call for, um, uh, short short stories that could be made during lockdown. Um, so it was, you know, minimum script, you know, so you just had maybe two characters, one location. Um, but so they wanted to make content during lockdown. And um, I wrote, I literally wrote it, I think it was in three days. I think I stayed up, I did maybe pulled two all-nighters and wrote a story called Salvation Calling and um, just emailed it off to BBC Writers Room, thought nothing of it. I said, oh, there'll be thousands in for this. But sure, look, if you don't put it in, you don't know, you know. So I just sent it in and... Uh, 
yeah, there were 7,000 submissions and um, they made, I think they made 12. Wow. In the end, yeah, and Salvation Calling. So um, there was um, Patrick McElhenney was... Um, no, Ian McElhenney, sorry, got the name wrong. Ian McElhenney, who's in Games Thrones and Derry Girls, the granddad from Derry Girls, he he was the lead in it in, in Salvation Calling and they, they they made it, they produced it, they broadcast it. Wow. And that was massive. It was huge. And I suppose that was again, it's just another boost. It's just another, I suppose. What's what's it like? I know Paddy was your first uh, production that yeah. made it to screen. What's it like to see your screenplay on screen for the first time? It's it's bizarre. It's bizarre, you know, when you when you're watching the actors say the words that you came up with, you know, and um you're like, God, is this real? You know, because you've seen it on paper for so long and, and so many writers only ever get to the paper stage, you know, and the dream is to have it on a screen. Um, but it's incredibly hard. And, you know, your years, I mean, people don't understand, you know, when people say, oh, what are you doing? What are you working on? And you say, oh, I'm working on all these different scripts. But it could be years. I mean, so, some scripts stay 10, 15 years before they ever get to a screen. So you, you can't have any illusions that you write something and it's going to be made in 12 months or two years. Like, you know, that's very often never the case. And, and will you only work on on your own stories, or would you work on other existing series? Or oh, abs- oh, absolutely existing series. Like I, I've written an episode for Smother. Oh yes, which was a real privilege because that was made in in Lynch, and and I'm living in Clare. I'm a Limerick woman, but living in Clare, so so that was fabulous. That was with Treasure Entertainment. Really enjoyed that in a writer's it was room. A great series. Yeah. It was fabulous. So it was the last series as well. Um, so it was a real privilege, real honour to be asked to work on Smother. Um, and then most recently, I worked on um, Hidden Assets, which again was uh, a great season two. So I wrote an episode for that, oh, which right. was which was great because again it was shot in Limerick and Clare. Um, well, so there's a big international production. It's a, a big international production. It's a, a Belgian Irish co-production so and it went to Australia it went international as did some others so you know there were writers rooms so they were really you know working with other writers and working with the lead writers um, on those on those projects so I was one of a team um, and that was great fun and it was great learning um, but you know there are other people's ideas there are other people's babies you're coming in and you, you have to kind of you know fit into the style of writing because obviously you know all the episodes have to kind of run similar style um, but, it, but I mean it was a huge learning curve to write on a show that's in production and the pace of it and how fast you have to turn it around because there's production deadlines that need to yeah. be made so um, and then my own my own show then Every Five Miles got um, made by the RTE Storyland scheme so that aired November last year um, and that what, was Can I ask what was that about? Yeah that was about human trafficking so it was a, a fictional drama sort of again I suppose inspired by my own work in in community work going back a number of years ago where I met a young lad in um, in a car wash who subsequently afterwards turned out to be, uh, you know, what we call modern day slave. Um, but I didn't know at the time. And uh, it just really, I suppose I like writing, you know, somebody says, you know, f- find out the things that nobody's talking about and write about those. So I was like, you know, I don't really see this on screen about this world around modern day slavery and human trafficking, but I know it's everywhere. It's every five miles, the research tells us. Um, so I wrote a story about a boy who was trapped in a car wash in rural Ireland and uh, the relationship that he develops with um, with this young girl in the petrol station and how he's trying to, to get free and how she tries to help him. Um, so that was, again, it was worked with a mm. wonderful company called Vico, Vico Films, who make young offenders and, you know, worked really closely with our our director as well um, and that was picked up by Storyland and they made a number of those last year and Storyland again uh, in 2023 we were the 2022 batch 
but that again you know the dream then is to kind of make every five miles as a full series yeah, so well, that was only a pilot it was only you know a half hour but the dream now again is to you know and Screen Ireland are supporting us we, in we, that dream can people go and see that somewhere it's on, the or, it's on the RT player so there you go RT player every, yeah, every five months every there five must months. come a point though and again um, trying to and I say this for husbands, wives, partners, males, females, whoever trying to wrangle a family and a full-time job and then this other job yeah, there yeah. has to become a point where you say one has to give. Or yeah. I, well, financially one give as well. So you've got there's a lot of yeah. considerations. Yeah, of course, of course there is. And I mean, you know, the hours I was pulling down was was ridiculous, really. When I think back on what I was trying to do, you know, you know, my two sort of job very rewarding, but but you know, you give an awful lot to that. Um, so that was your nine to five, Monday to Friday. Then you have the kids, and and you know, they're busy kids. They've got their lives. They've got their after school activities. They've got their homework. And then you know, my writing schedule was sometimes it'd be you know when the kids were in bed, so you'd be looking at nine o'clock at night. You'd be writing maybe until one or two in the morning. Then you'd be going to sleep for a couple of hours, getting up, starting it again. Um, it was crazy. Um, but you only do it because you love it. I mean, you. Would never do that unless you were slightly obsessed with it. And so, when did the big moment come? The big moment, I suppose, came. You know, you, you sort of you have to kind of test the industry first. So, I was kind of doing this for about four about four years, and I was kind of doing it on the side. You know, in my spare time, taking extra holidays from Tusla to write. And then, I think really it was COVID lockdown, and I think it was you know a lot of the Ukrainian prices and the pressures in work. I was just just really exhausted. Um, so, February last year. February 2023, um, I have a, a wonderful boss. Um, I have to give him a call out, Mr. Mick Parry. <laughs> He's very understanding. Um, a wonderful boss who knew this was my passion. And I went to Mick and I just said, look, I just have this dream. I I really need to give it my all or else I'll never know. And he was cr- incredibly supportive. And he said, look, you've been, a, you've given such a great service wow. to the public service for 20 years. So I applied for um, a sabbatical from, from Tusla. And I said, like, you know, I'll never know if I don't try. Um, so he said, off you go. You have our blessings. So. So, um, this has yeah. been an incredible story of positivity, but there, you do get some no's in your life in, the, you get, in being a writer. Oh my God, it's you have to. It's like how you do hard well. You know, you have to be able to do hard extremely well. You have to have resilience, resilience. <laughs> resilience that old word, bounce back ability. You have to be a boomerang. Um, you know, there's it's like eighty five percent rejection. I mean, you know, in anybody in the creative industries, you know, if you're if you're a novelist or a screenwriter or a musician, it's the constant nose. And it's just that it's just not for them or the industry doesn't want historical drama at the moment. It's very hard sell. So, you know, you've got a historical project that's not going to sell. So it's constant nose. And, and you have to work. What's your what's your work day like now? Before it was maybe dropping people here and dropping people there. And What's your day like now? Yeah, I mean, it's before it was very much meetings, meetings, meetings. I was, you know, maybe leading up a, a meeting of 15 to 20 people um, constantly throughout the day whereas now it's it's solitary which is very strange change for me so you know the kids go to school nine o'clock I'm, I'm on my desk at ten past nine but you'll have to be on to LA like at 3am I need to be to LA <laughs> There's very few LA calls, but um, <laughs> they're coming. That they're coming. No, there's there's a few, but the time the time difference actually suits me. Um, I'm I'm writing a project at the moment with a, a co-writer in Australia, and the time difference really suits me because the kids are in bed, and I'm used to kind of writing at night now. So you know, she gets up in the morning, and it's you know midnight in Ireland. So I'm fine, and, and, and so our days and the same with LA that the night daytime kind of suits me because the kids are asleep, so I'm not disturbing them. Um, but yeah, you have to be you have to be religious. You have to be very, very disciplined. Um, and because it's a I can job. see myself eating and watching telly. You know, I just, I'll just set my laptop up and I'll line up my pens and I'll get this ready and then I'll just watch a bit of this morning. Yeah, and and you know, it is that thing of, you know, your your brain just 
becomes frazzled and sometimes you have to step away from it because the story just isn't working and you say, right, I'll take the dog for a walk or, or I'll yeah. step outside for a few minutes. You have to do that because it's you don't have a team around you that you can bounce ideas off of. It is a very solitary profession. You're on your own and sometimes you feel like the voice in your head, you're going a little bit crazy. Um, and you're like, am I, am I doing this right? Am I not doing this right? Well, can I say you're doing something right with all those some, with things that have made it to the screen? Something's what, happening, yeah. What's, what's, what's happening tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? What's on the slate? Yeah, 2024 is really exciting. So um, I, I was a big avid reader as a child, loved books. So I was always kind of waiting for an adaptation. Um, so there is two adaptations, book to screen TV adaptations I'm attached to, which I'm really excited to get stuck into in 2024. Um, again, working on every five miles, we've got some development money there from Screen Ireland to help write the pilot episode for the series. So that's that's another thing there that's happening. Um, and then also I'm doing um, a, a co-job with um, another writer in Australia um, called Riley Ridge, which is an Irish-Australian family drama story. So we're hoping to bring that to market. And there's also a psychological thriller called The Devil you know so you have to but you know you I'm have exhausted to, you have to juggle them all because <laughs> now you do it. it's the nature of the work it's you know only one of them might ever make it or none of them might make it so you can't just write a screenplay and say I'm just going to sit back on my laurels now and someone's going to come and give me the money to make this you know the chances are so slim that you have to have multiple projects lined up because you're just hoping that one of them hits that bullseye um and, and that's what most writers are working across a multiple of projects. Wow. Well, Sinead, thank you for sharing your story with us this morning. And I'll be looking out for you on the red carpet now. Oh, I don't know. Writers rarely get in the red carpet shade. That's the actors. We're behind the screen, which is fine for me. <laughs> and, and someone said, you're also writing a series called Dog Stars for Children. It's yeah, dog star. It's not for children, but it's a kind of a coming of age story ah. about about a little boy who's kind of you know trying to find himself, and it's a, an identity story called Dog Star. So it's you know follow the the star in the sky, but it's lovely. It's it's a beautiful beautiful story. So yeah, that's a feature film that I'm writing at the moment. And yeah. you know, talking about glamour and TV and and thing. Before I came out this morning, I made sure I took the mints out of the freezer to make the pasta later. <laughs> that's that's the that's the reality. <laughs> there is no glamour in this. You know, the, my days could be sitting in my pajamas with no makeup on and. Pasta. And, and you're typing at the Me computer, too. you know. There, there is no glamour. It's, um, but it's, it's very rewarding. It's, you know, if, if you're a creative, it's, it's a wonderful industry to be in. But it's, it's hard work. Yeah. Sinead, thanks so much, Sinead. Calipina okay, thanks a lot. From Shay. our Limerick studio. Happy New Year to you, Sinead. Happy New Year, Shay. Now, this, my next guest's DNA definitely contains some broadcasting chops, but he's turned his culinary talents and curiosity to a foodie podcast called Spooning with Mark Wogan. And he joins me this morning from our London studio to talk about it from the BBC. Good morning, Mark. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? Do you know I'm in flying form this morning? And how are you? Uh, not too bad. I'm, I'm missing one coffee. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one coffee short of fine. And how did that happen? Well, I got here preposterously early and but I've had the pleasure of sitting in this tiny dingy little room in the bottom of Wogan House listening to you broadcast which has been a pleasure. Oh well that's that's very very kind of you to say there's weather warnings around London and uh, south of England at the moment. Yeah, it was bright sunshine driving in this morning so I don't know I don't know whether they've got that wrong. Mind you I, I did go for a walk a rather foolish walk in Storm Henk the other day. Oh yeah. And and a tree fell down and not that, not that far away from us. Yeah, but well, I, we survived. 
I think the wheel, the, the famous wheel on the Thames, one of the hatches was ripped off it while uh, there were a family inside. So, yeah, it was yeah, a serious I, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't go up on that thing. <laughs> Terrifying. Even, even in the sunshine? No, even in the sunshine on a calm day. I went up on it once with my family and I had to sit and, and do deep breathing on the chair in the middle. I found it so terrifying. <laughs> That's the things you have to do with your family. Just grin and bear it. We have this thing called Funderland here, which is like a theme park, a travelling theme park. I know, I know Funderland. Ah, OK. Well, you know Funderland then in the already. Yes, and I had I was there upside down a couple of weeks ago, like a fool, like a no, fool. No, and you know, I, I, unlike you, I don't have a body fat of seven percent, so uh, I have muscle muscle of seven percent. So it was all just it was all just hanging down, man. <laughs> well, you see, you see, uh, that's that's uh, my son Harry. Uh, that's to go on those things. That's his mother's job, Susan. She she goes on those. How many do you I, have? I, I, I've only got the one, ah. uh, Harry, and and the one wife, Susan. <laughs> sure, that's all you need. Exactly. Be honest, any more than that's a lot of work. It gets expensive after that. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about your your culinary talents, your history in 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 food. Yeah, well, I mean, you describe me as a chef, which is a stretch, to be honest, because I haven't done that since about two thousand and three. As I always say, I used to be a chef, but I'm fine now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I. I you, you know, I ended up in hospitality because uh, essentially I have no qualifications and because uh, I messed up a little bit at school. So where do you end up when you've got no qualifications? Well, back in the 80s, it was a kitchen. Um, and uh, the first place I ever worked was at the Neal Street restaurant in Covent Garden with the lovely Antonio Carluccio, who's sadly no longer with us, and and uh, Gennaro Contaldo. Wow. Uh, so those those were the first people I worked with, which was a joyous baptism of fire. And were they in the and kitchen together? No. Um, it was Gennaro in the kitchen and... Um, Antonio sort of steering things from 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 a desk because I saw the TV series they made before Antonio the died. The greedy Italians. Ah, that was a great TV series, and they great. really their, their relationship really came across. It was like a father and son relationship in some ways. Yeah, and they were they were terribly grumpy and rude with each other, but 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 it all came from a loving place. And how long did you stay there? I was there for about a year or so, and I actually... Do, do you remember they opened those things, Carluccio's? We have one in Dublin. We still exactly. have one. Well, I, I, I worked on the opening of the first ever Carluccio's. Ah. I spent my life cooking polenta biscuits. And they're still on the menu. Well... Uh, probably, it's, probably my recipe. But it's your legacy. It's your, well, you're going to have other le- other legacies. But you, you, the, the hospitality then came calling in terms of, uh, I, well, I mean, the bigger side of things as well. I, I, like you were involved in plant-based ingredients. You're involved in a pizza restaurant now as well. So yeah, you, but, you went from I mean, chefing to owning. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I stopped cooking professionally about 2003. And uh, I then created a business partnership with my brother, Alan. And we've had that now in one way, shape or form for, you know, over 20 years now, which uh, makes me feel old. But, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago, we opened a thing in London called Home Slice Pizza, which has gone really well. And we've ne- we, we did have six of those, but the lockdown and COVID managed to get rid of three of them for us. You know, I mean, for anyone, I mean, most industries and, and particularly uh, hospitality, the last three, four years have not been a barrel of laughs, but, but we're, we're still in the game. Uh, so we've got three of those in central London. And then uh, with a chef called Neil Rankin, who's a Scotsman and a very talented man, 
uh, we created a business called Simplicity Foods, which we make plant-based products that we currently wholesale into restaurants in the UK and Ireland. And we, we I suppose we're, it's just over a couple of thousand restaurants we supply with that now. Wow. And uh, hopefully that will be in a supermarket near you this year. In Ireland? So we're, uh, well, all, all over the place. We're, we're, we're trying to get it out there as a, as a retail product at the moment because we're very proud of it. We've taken a revolutionary approach to plant-based eating. We use vegetables. <laughs> Rather than soy and <laughs> yes. cultured yes. proteins, yeah. uh, yes. various things, things made I in the lab. Exactly. You see a lot of those products and you turn them over, you look at you look at the ingredients on the back and you need a degree in food science to understand what at least 38 of them are. <laughs> I like that. You're going to make a, and, and in the pizza restaurants, you have vegan ingredients as well. We do. We do. Uh, I would say about, I mean, nearly 60% of the menu is available with vegan options. That's becoming more and more popular, the popular choice for people. Well, I think, we, you know, we could all do with eating a few more plants. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like all ingredients. And that's that's sort of the basis for the podcast, really, is there's no such thing as a bad ingredient, uh, you know, outside of a religious belief or 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 a, you know, actual medical condition. Sure. There's there's you've just had it cooked badly for you. So that's what we challenge on Spooning with Mark Wogan. You, you, well, that's. It, I love the way you introduced that. The professionalism of you segueing to you your see, own podcast. Did you see the way I did that? There? Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, t- well, tell us about spoon. Now, obviously, spooning has a, a other connotation as well. But this is actually a spoon we're talking about. This is food based. Yes, I'm. I'm giving my guests a, a more of a metaphorical hug than an actual hug. <laughs> well, although, I mean, although Matt Tebbett did offer to spoon with me. <laughs> And, you know, he's not an unattractive man, but I felt, felt, let's let's not push the boundaries. Presenter of Saturday Kitchen, which is a very popular programme here as well, and uh, uh, he's a very attractive man. Now, uh, (laughs) you're no stranger to broadcasting. You've presented a number of shows over the years, but you kind of had a hiatus for a while. And then how did you end up with the the podcast? Well, I mean, the the hiatus was enforced because, quite (laughs) frankly... You know, I did I did a bit of stuff in the in the mid nineties, which you know, thankfully, is not represented with any depth anywhere. So you can't see what an Egypt I was. But um, yeah, this this came about because I was literally wandering down the street one day with purpose, not just aimlessly, and I glanced through a pub window and I saw my good friend you inventors sitting next to Chris Evans in a pub and I waved at them through the window. They beckoned me in and they were having what can only be described as a long lunch together in this pub. And there was a whole group of people there and this nice man was sitting there and he said, "Um, have you ever thought of doing radio? To which I replied, well, it was more of my father's gig, that one. And he said, well, I think you should do it. I said, that's very nice. And then he said, well, I can make it happen because I happen to be the head of audio and Chris, Chris Evans's boss. <laughs> so that's how it came about. We had a couple of discussions and I came up with the idea for spooning. And, and we've sort of about, uh, we've recorded about 20 of them now. And we're, 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 we're drip feeding them out every Thursday. Today is one of my favourite ones, which is with Claudia Winkleman, who is a very funny woman. Very funny woman. She was it's, it's, she was on Graham Norton's New Year's Eve show, and she was certainly showing her comedy chops there as well. And she's the presenter of the huge like, runaway success, Traitors. 
Well, I think I think she can now be described as the queen of TV. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I look forward to that. I was listening to the podcast. I, was, I listened to Matt Tebbit. I listened to Jimmy Carr uh, as well. There was some, 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 about five have been released. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. This, this, this one today is number five. Okay. And uh, it, look, it's been, it's been great fun. So tell, tell us what you, really to, what you do to the guest. What do you, so, how, does it, how does it work? The way it works is before the guest comes on, they answer a little questionnaire about, you know, ingredients they love, ingredients they don't love, f- guilty food pleasures, best meal they've ever had, worst meal they've ever had, childhood food memories. And from that, me and the chef, Jamie Shears, who's the chef at the Mount Street restaurant where we, f- where we record it, create a little sort of you know, horn of plenty on a table for them. And then we work towards these two spoons. Now, one of them is something that they've said they love and the other one is something they said they hate. And I blindfold them and I feed them this spoon and they've got to kind of talk about what they're tasting. And the idea is that we change people's opinions on what they think they like. Because if you remove sight... All the other sort of flavor receptors can play play tricks on you. And we have about an 80% strike rate at the moment in terms of changing people's opinions on oh. stuff they thought they hate. So purely by t- them not knowing what it is and not visually being, yeah. able to, not being able to see it. If they can't see it, you know. And, it, and so, for example, somebody might say, you know, they absolutely hate tripe. Now, tripes are challenging, you know, protein. <sighs> It can depend on how it's prepared, to be honest. Yeah, it, if it's yeah, prepared exactly. well and, and yeah. cooked well, it can be... It can, it can be. be delicious. But, yeah, I mean, you, for example, what's the one thing you hate eating? <laughs> Have you seen me? There's not much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my hobbies. It's one of my it's hobbies like, eating anything. Well, well, I mean, look, as, yeah, as, I'm, you, I'm, as like, you know, myself, I am, I am... There's an overnourished man dying to get out. <laughs> Uh, I suppose uh, baked beans uh, it kind of makes me cringe. The thought of it makes me cringe. You said, well, what's wrong with a baked bean? I mean, the, the, the baked bean has kept nations going. What have you got to get? Well, you fed them. You, you probably fed them too early as a child. You didn't like the flavour and you've ne- and the texture. Just, you know, they were microwaved. They went they coagulate around the edge and then they, they got a bit dry on top and then they're reheated again with the mashed potato. Like, don't please don't please don't start yeah. this. This is the problem. When people murder an ingredient, why would you want to eat it? But if you cook it properly, it's a nice thing. Did you blindfold your teenage son and get him to try this? Uh, I did, actually. There was a whole group of him and his friends around. And I just to, to see whether the theory worked, I sat them all around the table at home and I put several things on a plate and blindfolded them all. And they had to just tell me what they were eating. And some of the answers were extraordinary. Like they couldn't, they, you know, I know for a fact my son hates mango, which, you know, is fine. But he thought he was eating pineapple because he hadn't seen it was mango. I gave them dates. They thought they were eating chocolate. You know, I mean, it's, okay. it is an interesting thing. When you remove sight, all bets are off. What, what I like about this is a podcast, but it's also filmed. It's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're very lucky to my my friend, you inventors, who heads up uh, a whole raft of uh, lovely restaurants around around the country and Scotland and all sorts of places. But they have the Mount Street restaurant in 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 London's rather shabby Mayfair. <laughs> 
and they what have this dive. fantastic what a dive terrible terrible hellhole and they've got this lovely room at the top that they call the games room and we're very lucky to, we get we get to film it in there and it looks lovely on camera and it's a really lo- nice warm room and it just puts everyone at ease before I blindfold them and feed them their idea of hell. Where, where does your love of food come from? Like mum and dad are, are Irish mum. Mum Helen is from, from Dublin and yep. dad's from Limerick of course. Yep. Um, where did the love of food come from? Well dad freely admitted when he was growing up that his mother was a filthy cook <laughs> but uh, luckily he married my mother who is an exceptional cook and oh. We all grew up eating incredible food because mum was very, very experimental. She really pushed the boundaries in terms of, you know, ingredients, flavors, all that thing. We never, you know, people go, oh, what are your family favorites? She was always cooking something different and interesting. whatever. So we all had a love of food. And as a result, we've all ended up in hospitality. My sister and her husband have two great pub restaurants out in one in Cookham and another one in Gerrard's Cross uh, in the south of England and you know we all just love food and as you as you I mean it was quite obvious that my father loved food as well well you, your dad and for people who don't know who are listening your dad is Terry Wogan um, yes. and you're in Wogan house now <laughs> I am. I'm sitting in Wogan House. However, they have stuck me in a dingy, windowless. Did they not know? Here. Did you not demand at the reception desk <clears throat> as you walked into the security guard who doesn't know anybody, and go, "I am, I'm Mr. Wogan." Well, it's the great. It's the great line. Is it? Do you know who I am? <laughs> Could somebody help this person who doesn't know who he is? <laughs> Your dad was a, a foodie as well. Oh God! I mean, I think outside of sitting in front of a microphone, his favourite thing to do was eat. I mean. It, <laughs> And at points, you might have argued that you needed a bicycle to get on his good side. But, you know, he, his, 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 his weight fluctuated over the years. And, and I have, unfortunately, inherited his propensity for weight gain, which is uh, a family trait that if you walk past a potato, you put on a stone. Yeah, but you, you, you decided to change all that a couple of years ago, four years ago? Yes, that was, uh, that was as I was turning 50. I decided to get into the best shape of my life for the second half, having made a disastrous. <laughs> the first 50 years were a disaster. So I thought I'd, I'm going to, you know, try and increase my chances of, of hanging around a bit longer. So, yes, I went on a big transformation, which uh, when I set out on it, um, I didn't know how far I was going to take it. And... Um, being a man of slightly addictive personalities, I, I I took it a little further than most would, and I went from I was thirty percent body fat, and I went all the way down to just below seven. Wow, that's but, that's now, extreme. Now here is a cautionary tale in all of this: when you get that lean, you look phenomenal naked, but in clothes, people think you're dying. Because body or face, you can't have both. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> should be on a T-shirt somewhere. No, I literally people were coming up to my wife at the school, going, "How long's Mark got left?" Oh, it's like no. he's in the best shape of his life. What are you talking about? But I did. I, I, I honestly, it, the, the skin was hanging off my face. So I've put on what I would say uh, is a healthy amount of weight since since that yeah, well, I, I, I just I, want, I just wanted to see how far it was. Well, I, I, I see on YouTube you look I mean you look great you look fit and well 
on on the on the podcast. Having the name Wogan is that a help or a hindrance in the broadcasting world? Well, I mean, seeing as it's the only name I've got, I don't really know any different. And you know, I think if and I, I've said this before, and I think if 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 I've got this podcast just because of who my dad was, that would make me the oldest nepo baby in the world. <laughs> Fifty-three-year-old nepo baby, exactly. <laughs> As you said, dad, dad liked food, and uh, I know from other people. I met your dad once in in broadcasting house. I happened to be there with Ryan, and he was uh, filling in for your dad. And uh, we we went over a little bit early to meet him, and he was very kind and very generous. And he was off to lunch somewhere, off to off to have a, off to have a little bite somewhere. Yes. And uh, did you find yourself being brought to glamorous restaurants as a child, or was it were you yeah, kept, we, kept we, under wraps? No, we were lucky as kids. We did we did get to eat in some incredible places, and you know, it was, you know, I mean, it it would be, you know, remiss of me to say I had anything other than a privileged upbringing. But I think, you know, it's it, that love of food was 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 mum first and foremost, and then dad dad got on board. But I mean, he did. He loved a great restaurant. He loved he loved he loved a good glass of wine. I mean, he, you know, he liked to drink, but I mean, not not to a problematic point. I, but, you know. I think you're describing 95 percent of the people who are listening listening exactly. today. Here's a text from Jones: "Says what a beautiful broadcasting voice Mark has. The apple didn't fall far from the tree." Is the saying. Well, goes. isn't Joan a lovely person? Isn't that nice? Agree with Mark. Particularly love his reference to vegetarian food ingredients lists being incomprehensible. On the one hand, we're told to eat non-meat, non-dairy, and on the other, not to eat ultra-processed foods. You'd be forgiven for giving up and just reaching for the celebrations, says Claire in Dublin. Oh, we all like a celebration. <laughs> love, love a little celebration. Um, the podcast will continue. How many more have you, you got? Have you got 20 in the bag? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're just keeping going. It's like tomorrow um, I'm interviewing James May, which I'm looking forward to from, oh, you know. Yeah. And he's had a little cookery program out on Amazon Prime, which I think they paid him a small fortune for. Similar to what, what Virgin are paying you? No, but listen, I, I I won't be retiring any any time soon. Let me tell you, I'll have to keep working working into my old age. Uh, you must. Uh, how is mum? How's mum doing? She's great. She's you know, great. We yeah. all had a fantastic family Christmas together this year. All, all twelve of us round the table, and yeah. you know she's eighty seven now. And as as dad always used to say, he goes, if you want to inherit anything, you'll have to hit your mother over the head with a blunt object. <laughs> she continued to go. That, that, is, that, is, that is true. That is true words. Chris, Christmas you. is difficult. I know my, my dad's gone 23 years. So your, your dad's about, about seven years ago, was it? Yeah, it'd be seven years in, in February. And I'm sure it just feels like yesterday. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes it, somebody was asking me about this yesterday, actually. And it's that interesting thing is like, what I find is, a situation will arise. Some, somebody can say something or whatever, and you almost get mugged by your emotion on it. It suddenly just hits you, and you go, oh, God, he's gone, you know? Yeah. And because he still, he still very much feels like he's, he's with us. You know, he's, he was such a big individual and such a big presence that that just doesn't go away because somebody is gone. You see, and, you know, and that's a lovely thing. And also now, because... I'm doing a bit of this and I'm getting asked about him a lot. It's 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 nice to remember him 
as who he was and 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 what he was and and he he was he was just a lovely man you, and you, you sound he was like a great you're cl- you're dad. close to him yeah 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 we were very close as a family and you know that thing of it's it, what what's really nice is like yourself or whoever everyone has a great experience of him so wherever i go somebody tells me a lovely story about my dad yeah, some of the team here were with him in Mill Street when the, he did the Eurovision from, from Cork. Uh, Siobhan mm. was there as well and met him a number of times with Jerry over the years. Well, they must have all been drunk because he drank Baileys throughout the whole of that broadcast. <laughs> he did. He By, did. Well, what was his, his advice to Graham Norton was, don't have a drink before song nine. <laughs> do, do, do you get to Ireland much? Uh, you mentioned, I mentioned Funderland, you and I know Funderland. So did you, yeah. do you, did you spend much time in Ireland? Would, do you come back much? Jeez. Uh, yeah, we do. And, you know, I mean, a, a, lot, of, a lot of my youth was spent in um, various parts of Ireland because mum was from, from a large family. She's from a family of eight. And they, they dissipated across the globe. Some, you know, as they did back then, some went, some went to Australia. Some of them stopped being urban Irish people and decided to be country Irish people. And, you know, I've got uh, relations in Carlo and, uh, and I used to go and work on their farms in the summer and timber, fa- timber, timber yards and all sorts of things. So, yeah, but that I, 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 I do, despite how I sound, count myself as Irish because I still only hold an Irish passport. I haven't, got, I, haven't got, I haven't got a British one. Doesn't matter how you sound, we're claiming you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy might, to be claimed. You might have been born. A, you might have been born in Hammersmith, but we're we're claiming you. Well, you know, I was conceived on Irish soil because my mother was three months pregnant with me when they moved here in 1970. So you know the story of your conception. There we yeah, go. I do. Well, not the exact details. <laughs> <laughs> Any chance you might come over and record the podcast here? I'd love to. Well, I'd he, love to. He's an Irish some, chef. You know, there's, there's, yeah, there's some great restaurants over there and people doing great things. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I'd love to, the, you know, there's, there's some great Irish folk I would love to have on the podcast who, well, who, base, who base themselves there. So, I, you, you know, that's the nice thing about it. I think it can travel and I'd love to see it travel everywhere. Please do. You'd be welcome anytime. Anytime. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of people who'd love to help you record it as well. We've got great great audio professionals and video professionals here as well. So if you want to bring the crew, if not, we'll, bring, we'll supply you with the crew and look after you. Excellent. That so people want to, want to watch or listen, how do they do that? Spooning well, with Mark they, Wogan. If they search Spooning with Mark Wogan, they'll find it. It's on YouTube as a visual thing and uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. It's, it's there. It's there for your delectation. And it's look, it's just a bit of fun. We don't get too serious about anything. And it it's just shows people in a slightly different light because one, they're blindfolded and they don't don't know what's going on. And the other thing is that if you connect with people over food, you get a different different side to them. And I think that's that's you know, that connection with food is really important. I think it's what gives gives you a, a, a deeper meaning in a relationship. As I always say. No passion for food, no passion. Well, I think that's a good way, good way to end. Send all of our love to your mum uh, and the rest I of the will. family. And, and love to everyone over there. And yeah. I'll, I'll come and see you all very soon. Brilliant. Mark, thanks for taking the time and thanks for being in preposterously early into the BBC. Sometimes we're waiting here going, are they there? Are they there? But you're a thorough broadcasting professional. So what else would you be? Spooning <laughs> well, with Mark Logan, hosted by Virgin Radio UK, available online and to view on YouTube. Mark, thanks very much. 
Now, researching family history can take you down all sorts of roads and uh, people find, maybe some find skeletons in the wardrobe, some people find happy things, some people find they're related to royalty for you, some people find that maybe not so much royalty. Well, Rowena Riley started digging into her family history. She didn't find skeletons. Do you know what she found in the, in the wardrobe? She found a shipwreck. It's a fascinating story, and it's featured in tomorrow's Southern Stars, which Southern Star, which of course uh, is published in uh, the offices around, I think, in Skibbereen, if I remember correctly. Rowena Riley is on the line now to tell us more. Good morning. Hi, Rowena. Good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm great, and you? And where are you speaking to us from? Uh, from the edge of Dartmoor, Devon. <gasps> Oh, in, in beautiful Devon. And I, I was talking to Mark Wogan yesterday and there was weather warnings all over the United Kingdom yesterday. How's the weather today? Uh, well, it's calming down now. The sun is at last out. It's been pouring with rain everywhere. There's lots of floods going on. But, um, not here. Do you know lots of people go on holidays to Devon? Irish people go on, on uh, holidays to Devon. I've met many people over the years who've been there and particularly uh, visits to Dartmoor to see the, uh, the amazing landscape and the ecology. That, okay. Yeah. So there you go. So you're very. It's a popular, popular place. Now, we'll get to your researches and discoveries in in, in just a few moments. But give us a little bit about uh, your background, because you may have had maybe a superpower or skills in researching that other people wouldn't have. Uh, yeah. Well, I am. Um, I was a museum ed- uh, curator of education. So I worked in museums, uh, developing exhibitions, and and researching and 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 leading learning and education with people. And then a heritage consultant. So then I do the whole, the, the same thing uh, uh, sort of privately. What does a heritage... Uh, helping people, helping communities really research their local history and then develop exhibitions and stuff. So yes, yeah, so I had all of that uh, okay. behind me to help me in my research. And then I suppose like all of us, when you're sitting around the, the kitchen table, there are stories told and, and grandparents will tell stories and uncles and aunts will fill out various bits of stories. You heard a story from uh, your dad. That's right. And the story was very short. It was that my uh, great-grandmother, his grandmother, had been shipwrecked as a small child on the coast of County Cork, but she was the only survivor. But the ship came from the East Indies, which is what they called the South China Seas back then, um, and that she was tied to a clothes chest. She was about three or four years old, and she spoke French. And then she was adopted by an Irish family. And really, that was all they knew. That, that's the extent of what you had? That's what I had. Well, my father was very cynical about it. And, uh, you know, he, he, didn't, he wasn't sure that he believed it. But then my father didn't know much about history. Okay, so you decided this, this might be a little project for you? Yes, because um, um, the idea that uh, it was to cover up an, an illegitimacy didn't really seem to hold water because I have other... English ancestors who were illegitimate and everybody just said, oh, your parents died, which is the obvious thing to say if you don't want people to ask any questions. And, you know, people had, you know, died in the 19th century for many causes at all ages. You, what you don't do is come up with a really weird story that's very fascinating. So I decided I would see at least if it was likely and whether I could find the shipwreck. So, where, where do you... uh, so what I did was I gave myself um, a period of the 1860s and early 1870s since she married young in 1883 um, and looked through every shipwreck that I could find on the coast of Cork that might possibly fit. And there was just the one. Oh, OK. And where, where, where do you look for those records? Where would shipwreck records be? Well, I started quite a long time ago. So I was, um, um, it was before... Uh, 
20, 2008 that I started because that's uh, in 2008 I got the records of the the Joseph Sprott uh, from the um, University of Newfoundland, which is where they keep the records. Um, but and back then, they, 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 there wasn't everything that was online that there is now. And so there's a there's a book called the Shipwreck Index of Ireland by the Lans. And so I went through that, and then I checked everything else. And then gradually, of course, more and more things have come online, including all the newspapers and Lloyd's List. And I went and looked at Lloyd's List and the insurance um, records and, and started there, really. And the, but this particular ship fit the fit the profile, fit the dates, fit the type of ship it might have been. The Joseph Sprott. The Joseph Sprott, which came from the Philippines with a cargo of sugar, and it was actually headed for Cork. Although for a long time we thought it was going somewhere else because there was a mistake in the record. But um, it is absolutely the only ship that was shipwrecked on the coast of Cork. You know, for decades that came from the from the South China Seas. So that fitted at all. And I was looking for a ship that not only fitted the story, but one where it was at least conceivable that somebody could survive. So if a ship was wrecked, you know, miles out to sea, obviously nobody's going to survive there. And this was the one that fitted. So that's when then I got the at least the final account of crew, what they knew about the crew and where the ship was made and, and those kinds of things. But it wasn't really until uh, 2016 that I came over um, to the Long Strand, the Clonakilty, where the ship wrecked. And, you know, I just arrived there. I didn't know a soul. And I just walked up and down. And I kept asking if you would. Have you heard about the Joseph Sprott? <laughs> because nobody had. And they just kept saying, oh, I need to go and talk to Gerald Butler, you know, the ex-lighthouse keeper from the Galley Head. Um, so I went to talk to Gerald. And then we sat down and went through what I had and the newspaper reports from the time that I had and talked about tides and how it all worked. And then the research went on from there. But really, at that point, I realized I, I needed to know not only a lot about the ship and shipping and what would have been going on in, in the Philippines, but I needed to really understand the local history, who was living where, what was going on, what happened to wreck, in order to piece together the story. So, it, you know, it's many years' research, gradually, you know, unveiling things and then and tying it all up. And... What you're saying is that that certain leads that you had, some went to a dead end, but some actually started to be backed up. I'm fascinated by a child tied to a trunk. That seems really unlikely. Oh well, that it's not unlikely at all. By a trunk, we mean a, a clothes chest, um, because if you, there were lots and lots of children at sea, some of them were travelling. Everybody travelled by ship in the 19th century. But there were also lots of uh, families of captains, their wives and their children. You know, be, children be born at sea. And what do you do with a small child, a toddler in a storm? When everything is being thrown around the ship, well, you just tie them down. You strap them down to a bed. You strap them on a clothes chest. So that's, uh, that, which seemed unlikely to me, proved to be common practice. So how do you get then to, to the child? How do you try to find a name or find the... Uh, where what happened to that child? Where 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 the child landed? How it was rescued? Who who rescued the child? Well, all we had was that in the family, all we had was the fact that she had married, and on her marriage certificate, she had written down Patrick Thornton, farmer deceased, and we had the story. So I was looking for a Patrick Thornton, a farmer in Cork, um, but actually, when he farmed, that was later. At the time, he wasn't. So. I managed to find some Patrick Thorntons in Cork, but only one fitted, one one who was married 
who married Margaret Flynn in Ringerskiddy, whose father was a Coast Guard boatman and also ran a coal, coal yard there. And then when the, the marriage record was digitised, it came up that Patrick Thornton was a prison warder on Spike Island, oh. which surprised me. <laughs> um, but then I had quite a lot to go, and I still didn't understand how the only ship that, that, that matched could possibly be connected to somebody up in Ringerskiddy. Now, from the newspaper reports of the wreck, it's quite clear that the ship came ashore around one or two in the morning, and then there was a big gap before anybody informed the Coast Guard. And in the meantime, people were going down to the beach in the dark and taking boxes off the beach. So, so they were you know, taking what was being washed up from the ship and taking it away. And the reason that they were there in the storm in February in the dark was because another ship had wrecked a little a few days earlier, and that ship had sunk with silver dollars slightly over the other side of Galley Head, but it also had lots of cotton bales, and as these cotton bales uh, bobbed up from the ship, they would then wash ashore. So people were just walking the coast in the night to see anything they could find. About four in the morning, somebody informed the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard arrived, and then he could find see nobody on the, sh- on the ship, which was only 100 yards from the shore at that point. Um, and there was a longboat upside down but empty on the beach, so he just went away again. And then it, when the dawn came up, then all the, the ship broke up very rapidly, and all the stuff from the ship was driven ashore. Now, when I discovered that Patrick Thornton was a, a prison warder on Spike Island, um, I then had more details about him, and I went to uh, the National Archives in Dublin and went through the prison warder records, which they had there because they didn't burn down with the office. They were kept in a Dublin castle. So I peeled through all these records of, of prison warders until I finally, finally found Patrick Thornton, and then I had his application papers and discovered that he came from the same family that Minnie, we knew Minnie, left when she went to London uh, to work and to marry Joseph Maley. So it was all put together. But you still have the problem of how on earth, why would Minnie, at the age of three or four years old, having presumably been taken off the, off the beach by one of the people who were taking the boxes away because it doesn't appear in any of the newspapers. Why did that, uh, why did she end up with the Flynns and with Patrick Thornton up in Ringerskiddian on Spike Island? And the answer there is to do with what happened when ships wrecked along the Cork coast in the 19th century. And when, when ships wrecked, and there were thousands of wrecks back then, because it's before the Merchant Shipping Act came in that regulated loads and before lighthouses, well, the lighthouse was built on, galley, on the galley head, most of the local population would just dive down onto the beach to get whatever they could because they were very, very poor, and they considered it their right you know, to take stuff that's being washed up from the sea. And, but the local gentry would come and get involved as well, because they would try and protect the ship and then auction whatever they could salvage. But they didn't do that out of the goodness of their hearts. They did that because then they could whack in enormous fees to the insurers and get paid for being salvers. So there was good profit to be made from a shipwreck all round. And we know from, from my research into the local people there that the three generations of Galways had been involved with wrecks 
um, at the time. It's the family uh, because one of them because they had worked as Lloyd's agents for the shipper, shipping insurers, and also the local magistrate Henry Baldwin Beamish was deeply involved in shipwrecks as well, um, because there had been a board of trade wreck inquiry into a shipwreck about four years earlier. And that in that wreck inquiry, it was quite clear that Beamish was up to his neck in wrecking this particular <laughs> ship and making sure it wasn't seaworthy and profiting from it. Um, but he and the local gentry really took offence from how the English uh, investigators had behaved. So from that point on, they communicated not at all about any wrecks on the coast. So when well, we go back to my, uh, my great-grandmother, when my great-grandmother was found on a, on a clothes box on the beach, none of the people who were taking the boxes off the beach would have gone to the police or to the, or to the uh, normal authorities uh, because they would be prosecuted for theft. But they could take her to the Galways, and we know that Miss Annie Galway spoke French, and my great-grandmother as a child only spoke French. Okay. And the Galways were in cahoots with Beamish, who was a local magistrate. So it would have been quite normal for them to take her to him and say, what are we going to do with this child? And then he could then do something about arranging an adoption. So you now, think... up at Ring of Skiddy, are you happy for me to carry on talking? Yeah, I'm quite, I can talk. I love it. Um, it's great. But I, I just want to, because obviously we, we, our time is a little bit against us, but it, it, yeah. Minnie was then adopted, we think, by Patrick Thornton. Um, and you've established yes, that link with, because, the, with the Beamish family. With the Beamish family, because uh, Henry Baldwin Beamish's nephew, Dr. Thomas Beamish, was the doctor and the registrar up at Ring the Skiddy. So the connection was there. I think, uh, and people, the other con- there are other connections as well, but I won't go into all of that. For me. people who are, are researching, and when you found those official records, when you find that somebody is a prison officer or somebody has worked for the government at some stage, whatever government it might be, it's a bit like gold, isn't it? Because there's definitely more than likely going to be proper records as well. But do you believe the story? After all of your research, do you believe that that, that was the story? That, that uh, Minnie Absolutely was the, that child of the shipwreck? Uh, yes, absolutely I do, because um, although there's no official paper, there could never be an official paper that said Minnie was adopted because there was no official adoption until the 20th century. So all adoption was done casually anyway. Um, I believe it because to come up with that many coincidences <laughs> all the way through, you've got a perfect ship that matches the story in every way. You have a Patrick Thornton, who is part of the same family that we know from other records that Minnie left in, in, in Ireland when she went to England. He's part of the same family. Um, and I have a, a letter uh, that, that shows that, that was a reply to my great-grandmother from the local priest about that family and to all those records you could find it. And so, uh, the, you know, it's actually impossible for it not to be true now, even though it seemed so wildly, <laughs> kind of unlikely at the start. It's a great, it's a great story, Wayne, a really, really great story. Look, you have, the, you have the ear of the Irish people now. Can you, are there other things you'd like to know? Maybe people have records, maybe there are people listening in that part of the country or other parts of the world, actually, who may have a little bit more information. What are the things you'd like to know now? 
There is one thing that would be fascinating if one could discover it. In the uh, things washed up from the wreck, there were clothes, a woman's clothes, a black silk taffeta coat, a black lace shawl, things like that. But there was also one body who was washed up who was not a, a sailor. He had quite good clothes on. He had good quality trousers and a check shirt and a muffler. And in his pocket, the only thing that anybody had left in his pocket was his pocket knife. And on that pocket knife were engraved, engraved the initials, either RTI or RTG. And the reason that the uh, reporter who put that in the paper couldn't tell the difference between the I and the G is because it would have been engraved in copper plate. And in copper plate, it's quite difficult to tell the difference between those two letters. So if anybody has got a relative who might have been coming from okay. the South China Seas around 1870, who has who went missing, um, who has initials RTI and RTG, that will be fascinating to discover. One of, one of our listeners, um, Rowena, has just asked, would DNA be of any use? Well, we've already had DNA tests done. Um, we couldn't ha- do uh, the sort of father-to-son DNAs because this is uh, my father and we were all girls, so I have six sisters. But my most of my sisters and I had our DNA done for the autosomal tests, which tell you which part of the world you come from. And uh, one of my sisters has over 33% French DNA, and another sister has French DNA too. When you inherit from your um, great-grandparents, you don't all inherit the same amount. So it's mixed. You 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 mean that you have great-grandparents that you may not inherit anything at all from. That's because of the way that DNA works, um, because you only inherit 50-50% from either parent. But anyway, that is the only member of our, of our family. She's, Minnie is the only ancestor that we know of who was French. So that was another um, thing that, that uh, proved, really, that the story was true. Well, if people want to read more about it, it's, the story is being published and, and featured tomorrow in the Southern Star newspaper, which is published in the West Cork area and a wonderful newspaper it is too. Thank you for coming on, Rowena Riley, for, for telling us your story and we wish you well. And if you have any updates, keep in touch and let us know. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there any way they can do that? Uh, yes, uh, uh, by email. So yeah. Rowena dot riley at gmail dot com well there we go Marina Riley have a good day thank you very much 